Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. And I'm Dave Cohen. And this is episode 154, Would You Believe? In a little while, we're going to go back to um, the rest of our interview with Jasper Rees about Victoria Wood. It was really, really interesting. And this is all the other stuff we talked about that was not related to Dinner Ladies. But it was great stuff, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, yeah. From the, the, from the early be- beginnings all the way through uh, beyond Dinner Ladies as well. Yeah, but re- really insightful and, and uh, you know, such a good book as well. I really recommend it if you're, if you're stuck for Christmas presents at this point. Anyone you know who likes Victoria Wood uh, will, will love this book, I think. Yeah, and if they're British and they can read, they probably do love Victoria Wood and will love the book. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a pretty safe bet. Although I'm, you know, getting hold of books these days is not as easy as it was. Um, That's very true. Yeah. Well, I don't know actually. He said that they were they were they'd already printed a load and a load more were coming. So hopefully we'll be uh, we'll get get a, get a new batch um, and get them out to people yeah. as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So how do you become the next Victoria Wood? That's the big question. <laughs> and um, we've got some sort of breaking news, haven't we, from the BBC Writers Room, Dave? What is that all about? We have well. Um it was the uh, 20th anniversary this week of the uh, BBC Writers' Room, and uh, they celebrated, in inverted commas, by saying, ah, we're going to have to shut down our comedy operation, which is kind of kind of half the story. Mm. Um, there, there is more to come. It may have come between us recording this on Tuesday afternoon and going out on Thursday. But as far as we're aware, uh, an announcement is coming from Shane Allen, head of comedy at BBC, about how uh, the BBC will be picking up scripts from new comedy writers. Mm. So, Um, I mean, they already just ran the Galton and Simpson bursary thing. And there were other, there's the Felix Dexter thing as well, isn't there? Yeah, and And so in a way, they're already doing some of this stuff anyway. And I think they're think they're planning just to join things up a bit but we can't really speak for them we've not spoken for them but I guess it's kind of worth knowing that the BBC Writers Room aren't going to be doing another comedy window not an out and out comedy sitcom window it's going to be comedy dramas and drama here on in is that have I got that right Dave? That sounds uh, just about right. Yeah, I think so. And the comedy drama uh, window actually opens this Monday, the 7th of December. So you basically you've only got a, a month to get your script into shape. And then, unfortunately, as far as the writer's room is concerned, that's it probably for another year. Um, so that's uh, and that all happened very quickly. Um, first, we knew about it was uh, I, I happened to be looking something up in writer's room about. 10 days ago and saw this uh, drama and comedy drama window and I thought oh that's interesting they've never they've never done comedy drama before Um, and sent various emails to the writers room and didn't hear back a lot Mm. and uh, eventually um, Simon and Amanda from the writers room the comedy uh, section got back to us and said sorry Uh, obviously everything was moving very fast at that time Mm. I think that the plan, and the plan has been for at least a year now, Shane Allen has been looking at how to uh, bring everything to do with training or as much as possible to bring it under under his department's wing. And so sort of, and, and tied in with that as well, of course, so the, the fact that he's dealing with huge cuts and everything, mm. uh, every area of the BBC is being cut and cut. So it's... it's I don't know of, why. Because the the license fee is guaranteed by Parliament. It's nothing to do with the economy. 
Well, there are all sorts of. They are actually cutting uh, the the. the um, I think there is a budget of from uh, the government that's being cut, and also there's talk of uh, you, you you won't you'll just get told off if you don't have a license for you. You're not oh yes, that's right. It's they're going to decriminalise <laughs> it, aren't they? And so yeah. is it that they have to now pay? for license fees for people over 70 over 75 as the well, government yes. do that wonderful thing where we thought it'd be a great idea to give to make somebody pay for something for free for those people over there and we're going to pay for it and then we and then they get used to the idea that it's free and then the government mm. say well we thought it would be a good idea if then you paid for it you know like well we never agreed to that <laughs> yeah so it's always it, a sleight of hand as the government always do really or successive governments and in a way mm. the way the government do things is not that dissimilar from the way the BBC do things. Because from the outside, you, you may be looking at it going, well, why are the BBC Writers' Room doing this? And why are BBC Comedy doing that? And why can't the BBC do dot, dot, dot? And you go, well, hang on. You've just put three things together there that aren't necessarily related, which is the mm. BBC, the BBC Writers' Room, and BBC Comedy. Yeah, and they're and all this... slightly different parts of the BBC, one of which is BBC Studios, which mm. is an independent company now, um, you know, and makes profits that go back into. So it's all that there's there there isn't no there's no one BBC. It's a kind of it's a name. It's an idea. Mm. Uh, it's a philo it's a way of life. Uh, <laughs> it's just like what is the BBC? Well, as uh, and as we were we were talking to Simon and Amanda uh, yesterday, and as we dis discussed, and um, yeah. uh, you know, if you uh, if you've ever worked for BBC uh, radio comedy, uh, or you've worked for kids TV, uh, or you've had contact with BBC Writers Room, you know that these are basically tiny little. The cottage industries in the stuck in a, a yeah. corner of an office of, of some big management thing yeah. and you know they are they're basically two people and a cat you know yeah. do, doing 20 people's work and producing 10 times you know that they, they are actually the kind of thing total engine room and yeah. if you think about the amount of radio comedy that gets made the amount of kids comedy gets made mm. the amount of training that happens at bbc writers room this is basically a sort of very tiny little individual pockets that are all independent mm. of each other and 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 uh as was hinted by simon uh you know some of them don't always get on with each other quite yeah, as well as horror. you would hope yeah um so uh, that th there is some sense i think to shane as the head of comedy being yeah. uh you know ha having that under his roof i mean that the, the long-term bad news i would say is that um the the the, the the way that um, they're looking, they tend to be looking more for writer performers as yeah. opposed to writers or, uh, you know, writer performers who might want to write something that's not just for them. Um, and the, the uh, I hesitate to use the words good news, but um, the, the, the window for the next year, at least, I would say for uh, write, pure writers is that um, there aren't writer performers for uh, development producers to uh, look for uh, mm. at this point and so they are actually having to read scripts rather than have just go go and see shows because there are obviously aren't any shows to see so for the moment this is not a, a necessarily a bad thing for writers yeah yeah i mean these things all go in circles they all have their day you know it's it doesn't strike me that this is necessarily a positive or a negative move but more of a reorganization right comedy is dominated now by writer performers and i would say if you're if you're not interested in performing 
that's completely fine. Maybe comedy drama will increasingly become your friend anyway. Mm. And if you end up getting involved in drama, that that is a purely writer-led uh, thing because you don't really have any drama performers, if you see what I mean. You have comedy writer performers, but you don't have any drama writer performers yeah. um, in quite the same way. So um, so in a way, it's worth kind of exploring both. And if you if you are out-and-out out comedy, it's worth a maybe producing some of your own stuff and getting people to be in it, but also B, there may be some performers out there who are good, who've got an interesting voice that you can team up with and help them and write for them and become part of their team. So I think you just need to be, we just need to be a bit canny about it. And I include myself in that because it's not immediately obvious to me how I'm going to get another show on TV anytime soon. So, uh, you know, we're all in the same boat. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I think um, I, I am actually genuinely quite excited by this uh, inclusion of uh, comedy drama in the in the drama window because mm. uh, and, and this relates directly to a thing some of you who may have already signed up, but I, I do urge you to sign up. I'm doing three weeks of uh, daily emails starting this Monday, 7th of December, in which I'm trying to kind of work out what do we mean by comedy drama and the reason I'm saying that is because that, that there isn't it, it's a relatively new thing nobody has defined it yet and and it will become defined I think by by you and by by what you can come up with and uh, interestingly I've already had a couple of sort of email chats with with uh, two writers one who is very much uh, Danny Peake, who's written a lot of comedy, a lot of sitcoms. He's written lots of episodes of Not Going Out. Um, but he also has written Code 404 um, for Sky TV, which is very much... Oh, that a... explains why I haven't seen it. Because I was yeah. wondering, oh, that Code 404 show sounds good. I must have a look at that. And I don't have Sky at the moment. Exactly, so. yeah. yeah. But it's uh, I've seen a few uh, trailers and things for it. But it, it is very much uh, a, a drama uh, with with jokes. Um, yeah. But I also uh, had quite a long uh, discussion with um, Lisa Holdsworth, who is uh, who is a drama writer, really. And she started on uh, Emmerdale. You know, she wrote loads mm. of episodes for that. And she's written for uh, all sorts of shows like uh, uh, shows like New Tricks, uh, Ackley Bridge, uh, all, the new version of All Creatures Great and Small. These yeah. are these are drama episode, shows. I saw her episode and it was really funny. Yeah, these are drama shows that have humour in them. And both uh, Danny and Lisa kind of echo the thing almost that, that, that you were saying when we had our Patreon Q&A last week, mm. uh, when people say, what's the difference between sitcom and comedy drama? Uh, and the answer from a few people, including yourself, is, well, there is no difference. Mm. You know, it's a, a, a comedy, a sitcom uh, can have drama in it and a drama can have comedy in it uh, and in fact Danny gave some really great uh, examples he talked about West Wing uh, which is a, which is a, a drama and that had lots of funny uh, mm. parts in it and then he talked about he said you know like you can watch uh, six a whole six episodes of um, series four of Black Adder and be laughing all the time right up to the last moment when everybody mm. goes out and gets killed and it suddenly becomes a very uh, a, a very affecting drama you know yeah. so so it's that there's uh, there's a lot of room for a lot of interpretation and yeah. and for you new writers to to be able to uh, it feels like we're, we're we're coming back to a situation that we hadn't had uh for a while of actually well yeah you you have got a you've got a kind of bigger 
canvas uh, to, to draw on. You don't have to necessarily be thinking about a bunch of half a dozen, 20 somethings sitting in a flat talking about, uh, you know, nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think the only, uh, therefore thing that we need to learn and be mindful of is as, as people are writing their scripts and sending them through to a comedy drama thing, um, an initiative or just sending it to agents or whoever is you do need to be mindful of what the rules of your world and your show are. Um, because in a way, whilst it is all relatively undefined, uh, you need to be pretty clear how funny your show is meant to be and what it's about and what it's meant to look like. And I think clarity of character and story is, is even more important than it was. I mean, it was already paramount. So you just need to be crystal clear on what kind of a show is it because somebody who's picking it up off a pile and reading it and somebody who's switching over and watching it, they kind of need to know because they're, they're, although the, the boundaries are blurred, they still have kind of um, reference points in their head. Is this a comedy comedy show? Is this a silly show? If they see it set in a studio, it's a sitcom because there's no such thing as a comedy drama filmed in front of an audience. Um, not really anyway, not intentionally. And then, um, and then if it's going to be kind of, uh, quite exciting and excitable, um, or dramatic, but then it's got some really good jokes in it. Like, I mean, life on Mars, for example, um, mm -hmm. wasn't really a comedy, but to me was one of the funniest things on, yeah. uh, for a few years. And this, um, this is another thing actually, cause I, I asked the writer's room to, uh, to help us and to give a definition. And again, uh, mm. I'd say sign up to the emails of funnyup02 at gmail.com and you'll be able to read what the writer's room have said about what they what they mean by comedy drama. And, uh, but actually the only, the only thing they said definitely is it's not audience sitcom, but even then, funnily enough, I just, been writing these emails now and I started with a, a history of uh, of comedy drama and can you guess uh, what the first comedy drama was can you guess what uh, well, in the UK yes this is for the this I'm sure that, uh, I wouldn't have any idea um, I'll give well, you a clue I'm about to take a sip of tea as in drinking game yeah Oh, uh, oh, is it Steptoe and Son? Steptoe and Son, yeah. Oh, well done. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that is the first comedy drama. and it's Except and it's I, filmed in front of an audience. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that. I was thinking, actually, yeah, you know, there's something about watching an audience sitcom with a moment. And, and Frasier has quite a few of these moments where, you know, there, there, there is a moment of silence. And it's actually ten times more powerful mm. as a piece of drama because you can yeah. almost hear the studio audience holding their breath yeah. going oh my god this is really this has hit me in the stomach yeah. and then you know the the, the big joke comes that the release yeah. comes you know after it and that uh, uh, and you know I'd, I'd love to see some more sitcoms that have those moments again you know yeah. that's my that's well my a kind of a good sitcom normally does but i yeah. mean they are they are very hard to do and they're not making that many of them and i mm. wonder if as um it may be that the national theater and the rsc or whoever start live streaming more stuff and so you're watching something that's got an audience and you're still watching it you know, as because although people go to watch stuff at um, a big screen that's being live cast, as it were, or has been pre-recorded and being broadcast, I wonder if that will open up the opportunities. I remember, like with with him and her, 
which was obviously a show I didn't particularly go for, but it was obviously a sort of a comedy drama. It was very slow. Um, and it kind of was its own thing. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is, this is a non-audience thing, so it's fine. But I just thought, it's kind of like Pinter. Yeah. And, and that's a studio audience show. You know <laughs> what I mean? I mean, Pinter plays are theatre. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, I, I wonder what would happen if you played him and her in front of a studio audience. Yeah. If, and, if you, and if they knew what they were watching, they weren't expecting Mrs. Brown, but they were expecting something where, you know, where it's much more downbeat and um, subtle. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he could hardly be more subtle uh, than Mrs. Brown. They could hardly <laughs> fail to be, uh, to, to be more subtle in that sense. Yeah. But anyway. Which, which has its moments of uh, pathos as well. It does, yes. You and know. then he immediately berates the audience for going, ah, oh, <laughs> by saying, I'm a bloke in a dress. You yeah. know, it's just yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Sort bit of a slaps cheat, the audience. I think, but, you know, there you yeah. go. Um, whatever. So, yeah, so, I mean, how these things all shake out, we don't know. But what we do mm. know is that um, comedy drama window is now opening um, for yeah. BBC Writers Room. And you've got till the uh, 6th, I think, 6th or 7th of January, which, right. you know, considering that that's supposed to be a holiday period, is a little bit of a... Uh, Why not, not ruin holiday? your holiday by yeah. frantically rewriting your script and get Dave's emails about it as well. <laughs> yeah. And then... The day after that, on the 7th oh, of January... Big drum roll. Big drum roll. My uh, sitcom writing course uh, called Writing Your Sitcom uh, drops, lands, and becomes available to the world. Um, so there'll be more about that. But if you want to get a foretaste of it, as it were, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing some YouTube videos, short YouTube videos, which are on its own YouTube channel called The Situation Room. Uh, we'll try to get links in the show notes or go and find us on Facebook, the Sitcom Geeks page on Facebook, and I'll put up links. So, James, you're, well. you're going to become an influencer. No. Um, possibly, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it's 12 lessons, which takes you from, you know, a basic idea all the way through to a, hopefully a polished draft that mm. you don't actually hate. Because I think the one thing that I, I struggle with is when people say, oh, I sent in a script, but it wasn't any good. And I knew it wasn't any good, to which the question is, well, why did you send it then? And I get it. And I know why people say that for a mixture of reasons. And that's all fine. But the idea behind this course is, um, I think, just sort of going back to the beginning, starting again, have a fresh start, fresh look. The course tells you everything you need to know and doesn't tell you anything that you don't need to know, uh, because there's, awful, there's an awful lot of advice out there, which can be quite overwhelming. So, mm. so hopefully that will be of use so for, for the next round of things that happen in 2021, who knows, even if 2021 will ever arrive um, and maybe there'll be a nuclear war uh, before that comes along. Oh, um, th thanks. Uh, very cheery. Uh, well, that's the way 2020 has gone, really, isn't it? I mean, what's left? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, so on that note, uh, almost a Victoria Wood-like note, really. Yeah. Uh, we should probably uh, get back into that interview yeah. uh, with, with Jasper. So... Um, in the words of Victoria, let's do it. Can we just talk about those early years? Just because the thing... So, I, so when I started reading your book, I planned to get to the dinner ladies bit quite quickly because we're sitcom geeks and that's kind of what we're into. But also, we're about people establishing themselves as writers and writing careers and all that kind of stuff. So I got really hooked on the earlier stuff um, because one tends to assume... My memory of her, really, my first proper memory is an audience with Victoria Wood which was one of the first things that I recorded off the television because we had a Panasonic uh, VCR. 
uh, the one with the barcode scanner that didn't that didn't really catch on. Um, <laughs> yeah. It got it kind of got blown away by Video Plus um, mm. in, in the following decade. So I, I, I've memorized an audience with Victoria Wood because it's one of the first things I videoed and I've seen it probably you know, 100, 100 times. But Before you go on, could I just ask you, was it a surprise to you to learn that she was six months pregnant? Yeah, that would be surprising. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. get that. Yeah, yeah. That's so the fact, is, the fact is you watched it all those times and you, you never twigged that she no. was no. six months pregnant. No, 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 no. It's a well-designed costume. It's astonishing. <laughs> It's not terribly flattering, but in a way, I'd already had her in mind as that. And every time you go back, it just confirms what you already know. I, I guess it's a self-fulfilling thing. But the thing that was surprising is I'd heard that she'd won New Faces. And it was New Faces, wasn't it? Yeah. I just suddenly realised. Yes. Yeah. She, won a, she won a heat. Right. And therefore, you just think that there's a kind of a smooth transition from that to where, to where then she became well known. And actually, it was a disaster for a long time, wasn't it? And I'd be interested in yeah. your take on... How did she keep going? Because she seemed to have a hundred reasons to stop and she didn't even know what, who she was or what her voice was really, did she? Well, she kept going because she had faith that it was going to happen mm. eventually. Although she did when she met, so she, she won her heat of new faces in, in uh, 1974, just after leaving Birmingham University. And she carried on um, doing you know, doing, getting sort of various gigs, but she spent a hell of a lot of time doing nothing. Mm. Um, but event following the following year, she did meet Roger McGough, who got her up to uh, Edinburgh. So she started to meet like-minded people. Uh, and then she got That's, That's Life in early 1976, and that was going to be a big break. And she did write some actually rather amusing songs. But, but um, the problem was that when she took her show by herself, when she wasn't in shows with other people she didn't really have an act she had mm. funny songs but she had no ability really to kind of sell mm. herself on the stage and and it was only really when she met well two things happened she met jeffrey durham in 1976 and he's they they slowly started talking about how they could turn her into in quotes victoria wood mm. and then she met julie walters mm. when she was um she was cast in this show or asked to do these songs for this review in uh, Shepherd's Bush in 78. So, and that changed everything. So it was a kind of four year period where she was just struggling to break out of her chrysalis. Hmm. And it was a very, very long and arduous and at times extremely demoralizing process for her. Hmm. What I found interesting in that section, uh, there, there are two main things, because because uh, I, I was a, uh, a stand up before I did comedy writing and but I, I came along a little bit later so there was a kind of um there was a structure in place for people for there was a thing called alternative comedy um and interestingly um there was a victoria wood and someone else who features in your book a man called john dowie who uh was was too early they both of them were too early to be alternative but they would have easily fitted into what became alternative comedy uh and, and in fact they were you know they were perfectly successful or, or victoria was per perfectly successful uh going down the the, the mainstream route because she she was every woman but then uh the other aspect of it was that kind of uh, and people talk about comedians being the, the sad clown sort of thing but uh, I she's reminded me of so many comedians that I remember from that period people who went on to be successful 
I think the word is more dysfunctional maybe rather than sort of sad <laughs> and that there's mm. a real sort of there's a there's a lack of confidence, but there's also a kind of very uh, sure. She she had this incredible sureness that you know I'm going to be a star, and she was she was sort of saying that what when she was what 15 or something. I mean, you know, imagine meeting someone who's, uh, who's totally shy and sits there, doesn't say anything except the first thing she says to you is, "Yeah, no, it's all right. I'm going to be a star." I mean, that must have been kind of hard for the people around her. Um. Well. If it was, they never told me that. But I mean, it is. It is. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I. I can't disagree with any of that. But but um, she. I often ask myself this question when I was when I was looking into these years. When when she and it's quite stark and bold when she says, you know, when she's doing the summer show in 1975, which is an utterly awful um, uh, New Faces uh, spin-off, in which she said they got all the all the scripts out of other people's dustbins. Um, and she, even then when she was doing interviews and uh, she didn't fit in, uh, there was Marty Kane was easily the biggest star in it. And she was even then she was doing tabloid interviews saying, I'm going to be huge. Uh, she didn't use that was I'm going to be a big star. I'm going to make it. And you just where do you get this from? Mm -hmm. And I never quite satisfactorily have answered to myself the question of whether she was saying this in order to convince herself or whether she was saying it because she believed it and probably the answer is it was a bit of both mm. yeah but going going back to john dowie i mean yes i completely agree with you that that um that they you know and victoria often said i came along a little bit you know i was earlier just a few years earlier than all those alternative comedians who came along in the early 80s and um but when she did, I mean, it was luck that she met John Dowie and they and they went out on on a very sparsely attended tour in 1977. And she loved uh, working with him. But uh, I mean, it's impossible to imagine those two. I would love to be go back and be sort of teleported back to see those two together because they are so different. Mm. And they did have this they did have this um, mantra that I put in the book that they they started using when they were touring when. Uh, when they they worked out they were in a they'd done a gig in cardiff and and they were trying to imagine a, a comedian who dies on stage what do they say to themselves that they're coming off stage and they imagined that they would say fuck shit tip wank bollocks as they as they were coming off and so because victoria and john couldn't possibly both hit the bullseye with the same audience who had come to see them both and one of them when they came off having died in front of this audience would say fuck shit tit wank bollocks to the other as they were going on who would then prosper and thrive in front of this audience yeah. so yeah. anyway uh, I love that because also being you know comedians comedy writers we just crave terrible gig stories because yeah. the, the success is not actually all that interesting because you, you, there are that, because the, the, they, the success often looks quite similar, whereas fa there are lots of different ways of failing, and I just think they're endlessly fascinating. I uh, couldn't agree more, and I've always loved and been fascinated by biographies that are forensic about that process, the sort of, you know, the Janus moment where you go through a door, you know, in, in Byron's phrase, you know, I woke and found myself famous. Uh, but uh, when, when suddenly you're a nobody, uh, when, when having been a nobody, suddenly you become a somebody. Uh, I, there, was a, there was a very good book called Take It Like a Man, which Boy George, I presume, wrote with someone else, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually a brilliant, brilliant memoir. 
um, in which he describes the the process of becoming famous incredibly in, in incredible detail and you really sort of follow him on that journey and I was as you've alluded to the, the, those years where Victoria was struggling to fulfill what she regarded as her destiny uh, or the, you know, and her ambition from when she was a child a small child to become famous it was such an arduous process so I just I mean there have been people who've said a, a very tiny minority who I who have uh, been listening to the audio book of this book and said, "Oh God, I, I couldn't get I couldn't get past, you know, it's too long. It's just taking her too long to uh, to make it." Um, and, Even though uh, you know how it ends, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. Um, but I but I I agree with you, James. That yes, yeah, your success. There is a you know, arguably there's a sort of blandness to success. But um, I would argue with Victoria, her success was was there was never that kind of. Um, uh, I don't know, whiting out. Going yeah. on. Uh, her career is so extraordinary that I, I hope that her story doesn't doesn't succumb to that. Uh, oh, not at uh, all. And, and, and the and listeners of this show will will love all that stuff yeah. anyway. So I think I, just, I think yeah. this has got the, the failure and the success. Go on, Dave. I just like to say, just I, I, I had to write this down. I just thought it was such an amazing. Just 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 uh, I'll, I'll going back to that, and then we'll we'll move on. But the first time uh, Julie Walters met Victoria when she was they were sort of teenagers and they were auditioning uh, for something and Julia Julie Walters described her as frightened and shy and she had glasses and was shrinking from everyone else in the room which is just yeah that that she could remember somebody as being so yeah. unmemorable you know that's a kind of yes. that's an amazing thing but actually but yeah so to 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 kind of move move on from that i mean one other thing and and Again, I hope I hope I'm not over overthinking this or over theorising it, but it did strike me reading about her and about the struggles that she had, and I've been thinking a lot about the the uh, the, the, the women who came through in comedy, the solo uh, women who came through in comedy around that period, uh, a bit later, like Carolina Hearn and uh, Linda Smith and Victoria, and uh, a woman James and I knew called uh, Debbie Barham, who's a, a comedy writer, and they all they all died quite very young, you know, and uh, I was sort of thinking about this as I was reading it, and, and knowing what the how male dominated the, the comedy circuit was in in those days and and just wondering if you know it was part of the reason for that struggle was that just that, that there wasn't a place for funny women you know they, I, I don't know so just a theory i can't um i mean i'm a fan of of uh uh um linda smith and of carolina home but i i mean i don't know that you can you can sort of loop them all into a mm. into a, a sort of wider theory as to because they you know Carolina Herm is quite a lot younger mm. uh, and indeed I you know when we get on to talking about dinner ladies Carolina Herm does pop up as a sort of theme but but we'll get to that but I think I think in a way the fact that she was the only one and Victoria really was the only one uh, mm. in 1978 um, in fact, when she started doing stand-up in proper stand-up in 1980, uh, she was ac acutely conscious of the fact that she was the only one. She loved it. She loved the fact that there was no competition, and she <laughs> had this field that was completely free for her to explore on her own. And when she, I mean, she sort of joked about French and Saunders when they came along. She said, "Oh, I avoided them for years. Uh, didn't you know? Didn't I don't like the sound of them." Um, 
but uh, you know, I mean, in fact, as it as it happens, she was actually privately, you know, very collegiate with them and, and encouraging. But um, mm. uh, I think Victoria would. She, she, I do explore in, in, in a way in this book the way in which she didn't want to be seen as part of a sort of feminist mm. uh, project mm. or a feminist wave or tide. Um, you know, she had quite um, disobliging things to say about spare rib, um, etc. Yeah. I mean, what did she say? The quote is something like, you know, I know I've got, I, ju- I know I've got, got them, re- referring to ovaries. <laughs> yes. I just don't want to sing about yes. them. Um, so, uh, you know, she couldn't be co-opted in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. The thing that surprised me also, just as a kind of one last um, stepping stone to dinner ladies, is the, the amount of theatre she'd written. And th- this was a complete um, revelation to me that in the course of w- one of the pathways to success was writing that show called Talent, which I'd, I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another um, uh, play as well that were kind of musical plays. They weren't quite musicals, were they? They were sort of... Um, they were kind of their own thing and I guess that kind of must have stood her in really good stead for writing situation comedy although she'd done a lot of sketch work as well through as seen on tv and that kind of thing just feels like a whole load of planets were aligning at that point but that was a really interesting period that I didn't know about about her and I'd wonder if you can reflect on what the lessons she was learning through that well with talent she wrote just in three weeks. Talent, we came as a result of uh, In at the Death, that, that, that review show she did at the Bush Theatre in the summer of 78. Um, she got commissioned to write this play uh, for Sheffield and it had to be on by December. So um, she wrote it in three weeks. Uh, and I mean, it's an absolute gag attack. It's just, it's, it's absolutely packed with zingers. Um, but it's also because it's very autobiographical. It's about her experience of talent contests and about her relationship with Julie, albeit sort of tangentially and, you know, passed through a prism um, and a self-exploration. It's, uh, you, you know, there's a lot in that play and, and uh, it, it definitely has, you know, merited when it was revived in 2009. Uh, it, 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 it still had something to say. Uh, the next play she did also for Sheffield was Good Fun, which she struggled with more. Uh, and it, but, it, but it was a sort of, there, there were strong elements of sitcom uh, in it that, again, it was completely sort of enriched by, uh, mm. you know, just joke after joke after joke. Mm. So, so, so in terms of craft, uh, both of those plays were a very good sort of training ground mm. for when she finally yeah. came to do... Um, uh, sitcom um yeah. she did make an attempt so many other attempts to write plays but they never yeah well that's quite came. i mean i remember talent on tv and just being amazed by it and then kind of forgetting oh. because uh, partly because she was out of the, the the public eye for another sort of two three years or so after that yeah. but i thought um uh, and, and again this is the reverse that uh, the standard kind of route for a comedy writer uh, certainly around that time you had um, people like John Sullivan and David Rennick and Monty Python they start on sketches and then they then they get bigger she started big she started with the plays but actually where where she found her real power was in the shorter the sketches um, so, so again, I th- I'm interested in that being a kind of, and, and I don't know anyone else who's kind of taken that route, really. 
Uh, well, uh, without the, scanning the kind of encyclopedia in my head, which is, uh, uh, um, I, I can't think of anyone either. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why plays didn't quite work for her is she read that first play, which came out in a splurge incredibly quickly. And in fact, she wasn't brilliant. I hope, I hope this is not regarded as heretical to say this, but she wasn't brilliant on plot. Mm. And, and you do really need that with theatre. And also she wasn't, you know, theatre plays have to be about something. And, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, she was actually a terribly autobiographical writer. Mm. Um, as I contend in her biography, and I don't think she had anything really else that she wanted to say in theatre. And I suspect in the various attempts she made at writing theatre, it um, she discovered that too. Um, but when um, she came to doing sketches first in Wooden Walters, and then obviously primarily and you know uh, wonderfully in as seen on TV. Uh, I mean, it's not really. It's it's you, to call it a sketch show is to is to undervalue it because you know she was writing all the songs, some of which are quite melancholy, absolutely mm. brilliant songs, which she obviously performed herself. There were sketches, there were you know sort of piss take ads. She was she was doing a kind of um, this. She was showing the world of television, but but you know sort of filtering it through the. Uh, uh, the prism of her own yeah. imagination and you know doing mini documentaries i don't think you can call those mini documentary sketches they're far more sophisticated than, oh, than what one might so oh, memorable. one of the girls swimming the channel oh, oh my yeah, goodness yeah. <laughs> well that is uh, that is article one in my theory about about how she was she was constantly telling her own life story um uh in in her comedy yeah uh, in her comedy writing that's uh, really interesting what you say about theater though and i'd really not thought about that before i think that's really insightful how how theatre needs to be about something and if it's not going to be about anything um, as it were then it needs to have a pretty decent plot it needs to be farcical you know I'm thinking noises off or that kind of thing so it needs to kind of biff along like a a Cooney farce Mm. and the stuff in between doesn't quite it's kind of neither one thing nor the other Um, so it's kind of a good yeah, sorry to interrupt, James. No, Good fun is absolutely stuffed with with jokes, but mm. but she was unsatisfied with it, and uh, and Michael Codron, the theatre producer who had who had semi commissioned it, was unpersuaded that it, it it deserved a place in the West End. So and she she came to uh, regard it as a less than brilliant piece of work uh, later on. But yeah. it was it was the same. It had the same gag rate as Dinner Ladies. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, she was she was you know hugely suited to the half hour format. So let, yeah. as we should probably um, round off fairly soon. But you just sort of touched on the fact that she was generally dissatisfied with the industry itself, the TV industry, and she was uh, uh, critical there in private about you know uh, southern overeducated types um, who aren't actually very original, which is I think it's fair cop. Um, but. I did find that towards the end, there was quite a lot of sourness in her mainstream comedy. There, there was quite a lot of kicking television and the sort of people who make television. Um, there were one or two Christmas specials uh, quite late on. I remember just thinking, hmm, you seem to be a little bit uh, bitter about the medium that has made you an absolute ton of money in celebrity. Uh, not sure that's a particularly good look. Um, and uh, and some people like that keep doing it. But do you have a 
I mean, do you have a take on that? Am I just being a little bit paranoid? It, it just felt like a little. It was a bit ungracious, but obviously she put up with a lot. She did have it in her to not always be generous. Yeah. Um, but she didn't, generally speaking, have a good time with until Peter Salmon uh, with um, controllers mm. of channels, and she felt quite unloved when she was making. Um, as seen on TV, no, no one ever kind of wrote her a letter saying, well done for winning those awards. Uh, and actually she did like Peter Salmon and weirdly it was, it was, it was the year after um, doing Dinner Ladies, she did all the trimmings, which is the first time uh, which, which you're, you're alluding, there's one of the shows that you're alluding to in which mm. she gives the BBC a kicking is uh, partly because uh, Peter Salmon had come in for a lot of flack that year and she was the only post person who wrote to Greg Dyke to say I think he's doing a brilliant job wow. and it's because of him that I am doing you a Christmas special it's in large part because of him and it was at the same time as Big Brother was happening uh, and she was she was angry about reality shows although they were kind of right for common she was angry with them because she thought they were taking money out of actors mouths um, wow. Uh, and you know, she thought similarly about the only way is Essex and similar and shows like that later on. Um, and and she didn't like the proliferation of uh, new channels. So there's, there's lots of jokes in all the trimmings about you know BBC Good Old Days, BBC Brain Dead, etc. So she 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 didn't like the way in which uh, television was becoming, I don't know, was sort of bifurcating endlessly. Yeah. Um, but she was she got much angrier in many years later when um, in 2009, when Midlife Christmas, uh, she was promised a slot on Christmas Day. And then it turned out she got one on Christmas Eve. And it wasn't so much the fact that uh, she didn't get that slot. It was the way in which she was told there were there were younger executives and they didn't really know how to talk to her. And they were they were quite high handed or, or offhand. And so she did she did get angry with them. Um, and and she gave a very withering uh, interview to Decker Aikenhead in the Guardian about yeah. them. Um, so and yeah, people love I to mean, write about that I stuff then afterwards, don't they? Because I mean, John Cleese takes the bait every time. By the looks mm. of it, do you know what I mean? He's well, he's regularly and also um, John Lloyd um, is always very happy to say these people don't know how to read scripts. And when he was on this podcast, we did everything we could for him not to feel he had to say that, and he still yeah. said that. And it was it was very interesting. Well, we, about we, him. We've all been kicked in the pants by John Cleese. Um, <laughs> uh, Speak I think for the yourself. Thing, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's uh, I, I wrote a review of Hold the Sunset. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, which is um, the most unutterable part of utter bilge in my view. And I I thought it said so. Um, uh, neither of you were involved in it. I Correct. No, uh, no, we weren't. Yeah, I, I was yeah, executive I... producer, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and he didn't like what I wrote about it. Fair enough. Um, you wouldn't expect but, him um, But I, 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 before we do draw to a close, I just I, I wondered whether we could talk a little bit about about her range of... Is, it, is there time to talk about yeah. the jokes that she... Uh, hmm. uh, because there was... Yes, we've talked about the fact that you know she structured her sentences and and her gags so perfectly but but i you know I, one of the things that as a biographer that i was really interested in is obviously when you follow someone's life all the way through you notice patterns uh uh happening over and over again so as just for example um the fact that duncan's character stan uh 
always talks about the fact that he was at Catterick army camp uh, in the 1960s. That comes from the fact that Victoria did an absolutely terrible gig at Catterick army camp uh, in 1975 after she'd just been in Edinburgh. Or when she goes on the show totally trivial, she doesn't, um, you know, in the, at the end of the second series, uh, to try and win some money. She does, she's put, someone else puts her up, up for it without her realising it. Now that was because she had been put up for new faces uh, oh, yeah. um, without anyone knowing. Um, and Petula Gordino is, is, is a, a kind of um, a grotesque and highly comic uh, exploration of her relationship with her mother. You know, when Petula says, I've had postnatal disinterest for 40 years, or um, uh, you know, I had a baby once before, I, but I'd never really got involved. You remember, Brent? Oh, yes, it was you. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I put her in an orphanage, uh, orphanage and lost the address. These are things that Victoria had been exploring since before Swim the Channel and and you know obviously continued with pat and margaret so mm. petula is kind of is her mother and then even things like dolly dolly surname dolly belfield there was a girl at berry grammar school called belfield and she just found it a funny surname so she uh and then there's a joke about canadian air force exercises in the second series now jeffrey uh durham victoria's husband had been doing canadian air force exercises for several years mm. in the 1990s they were a kind of dominating theme of her house. So all of this stuff was sort of mulched. Uh, even when she makes a joke about, uh, uh, do, you, do you remember when in the second series when uh, Petula is wheeled in and announces that she's dying? Uh, and she's wheeled in with another elderly lady who's being uh, transported in the ambulance at the same time. And, uh, and they have a discussion about whether she can be left in the ambulance or not. And, uh, and, and Petula says she's not a sick, or someone says she's not a CD player, she's not going to get nicked. <laughs> and um, Victoria, when writing the first series, had, uh, in a kind of creative storm, had um, come into the house and left her car open and her CD player got nicked. So she just remembered that detail and bunged it in. Yeah. So, I mean, I could bang on this about the, there are so many old jokes that she, well, she, loved, she loved old joke structures that she repeated hugely. Yeah. And it's not cheating because no one, A, no one notices and B, no one cares. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you as a performer might not want to do it. And so I occasionally, so I write Milton Jones's radio show with him. And sometimes I notice a joke has disappeared in the script. And I say, oh, we're not doing the joke about um, the beekeeping. And he's like, nah, because he's sort of, you know, he's lovely, absolutely delightful, love working with him. But occasionally he'll just go, yeah. And I just said, yeah, but it's it's only the same sort of joke. That other joke you do about the thing, it's exactly yeah. the same kind of. And he's just like, yeah. He's just like, he's just not going to do it. Yes. And that's fine. You know, he's yeah. he's the one out there doing it. He's got the sixth sense. So um, it's okay to do that. But also, I think the other lesson to learn for our, our listeners, particularly who are writing, is. Is the fact that you can mine your story that's not cheating and also specificity is funny you know yeah. i think the stuff that you can't make up you know and we do need to be writing down weird stuff that happens to you or memorable stuff and mm. and you don't want to shoehorn it in but you just want that toolkit mm. you want that um 
you know suite of stuff where you can just go oh i need i need this kind of thing and that's i think all um, yeah i mean one of the things that um i get well i read i read a lot of scripts from people and they say uh we ask you know what why do you think you're the person to write this uh well it's, it's set in a betting shop and uh, well you know i worked in a betting shop for three years and i know all these people and i get that but that what i often say to people is you you kind of need permission to lie but i think at the same time uh, you know, the, the, a lot of these jokes, a lot of these characters, they're not actually true, but they, they're, a, they're just a sort of an emotional truth at the mm. heart. It's about her relationship with her mum, isn't it? And it's mm. about, and, and like when she and Julie, I mean, it's, a, the, the, it's like she, it's sort of like she falls in love with Julie, but the way you've written it, I think it's almost like a, like a romance. It's like she's found her, she's found her other half and, you know, she calls yeah. the, the other actor in talent is called Julie, although it's not. Yeah, you know, it's just a bit like it. And you talk a lot about how that and that, and then Pat and Margaret as well. She's writing about two two sides of herself. So uh, I, I think that's a really interesting thing, also for you know for a writers, you, mm-hmm. you you to be to be kind of ruthless on yourself. Did, yeah. did you get that when you interviewed her that much? Um. Uh ruthless about her she would victoria would never really talk about being an autobiographical writer i never really extracted that from her and it was only in the act of writing this biography that i've really uh that it's become apparent to me how much she was using uh her own experiences and the themes of her life and indeed particular incidents and taking them and you know imparting top spin to make them you know sort of deeper or funnier or uh whatever um so no she wasn't and, and uh, so a lot of the stuff the evidence for this i would find in her letters and her private correspondence or emails or whatever so so actually no uh, in answer to your question Dave. Yeah, but um but, but but i mean victoria never what she had to do in in this for the first time is she had to she didn't kiss for the first time because she also kisses duncan preston in pat and margaret but she kisses Andy Dunn in this and she also had to cry on camera for the first time and and that was in the second series and the second series I never really got to the bottom of what is going on in the second series with or autobiographically what's going on in the relationship between Tony and Bren because when she she was aiming for plotlessness in the first series the second series is really about it's a kind of will they won't they uh, Mm. romance soap uh, as well as a uh, a sitcom and she took you know she no one took the piss out of soaps more than victoria or more proficiently than victoria with acorn antiques and indeed the mal in her all day breakfast uh christmas uh show but but at the same time the second series of dinner ladies is a soap it's got the most ridiculous plot lines in it um you know the baby being left on the stairs or you know uh, uh, Gordino announcing that she's dying, or and and uh, Bren's husband walking in uh, the moment when they're just kissing. It's just it's it's the plotting is is uh, straight out of uh, I don't know uh, out of uh, Coronation Street or something or yeah. or a lesser soap. But she really clearly wanted to write a romance. She wanted to write a romance for herself. Yeah. And she got on very well with Andy Dunn. Uh, yeah. And there are pictures in the archive 
of her and her photo albums there's a lovely picture of her cuddling him and you know she the minute he came into the uh into the um audition for the first time he was just a kind of jobbing actor she was completely uh smitten by his smile and uh so um i sort of probably slightly failed as, as a biographer to 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 mine or explore that but i mean it does segue quite neatly dinner ladies or rather messily into the years of her doing you know yet more kind of stakhanovite overworking uh doing all the trimmings and then having an emergency hysterectomy and then going straight out on tour and then her marriage falling apart uh yeah in in, in you know all within a kind of 18 month period and didn't the, the 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 efforts that she made to perfect dinner ladies had a bearing on yeah. accelerating or or uh, catalyzing the end of her marriage well i would say much as i would like to talk about that we should probably draw stumps there but it's all in the book it's all in the it book is. so we it feels like in some senses in podcasting terms we've done a bit of a deep dive but we have merely uh, paddled in the shallow end of, of the material that's available in this excellent book, which, mm. although it is authorised, it is by no means a hagiography. Um, and it's called Let's Do It, and it's by Jasper Reese. It is it's available great. from all good bookshops that are open. Uh, so that would be online bookshops. And it is just an absolute no-brainer for the comedy fan in your life for a Christmas present, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. just, it's, it's just, a, just, just get them this. It'll just be easier. <laughs> I am um, duty bound to concur with your conclusion. Absolutely, but, uh, yeah, yeah. No, so um, it's it's a lot of bang for your buck. It's a great read, and you know I've I've not finished it yet, but I'm certainly going to read yeah. um, every, every morsel. Um, uh, well, have a box of tissues ready for the end. Yes, no, I will do. Yeah, yeah I, I'm kind of that's the kind of the unknown that that's there was there was that period where Victoria Wood was around, and she was you thought there's something going to be great that's going to come down the pike, and that, oh. She's she, she's died. Mm. Oh well, that we hadn't we hadn't finished. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm I may well mm. uh, shed some tears towards the end because she was just titanic in in her presence in the comedy scene, and it just felt like it's interesting when you're talking about how so many details of her life are on screen, and that is why people felt like they knew her, didn't they? Even though yes. she was quite hard to know, you know, and the way you describe her in the book and the way I've sort of you know come across references to her in other places as well it's it's she's not quite the person she seems and yet it's all it's all on the screen my my glib uh line is that uh is that people thought they knew her but that's because she knew them huh and uh yeah. i mean in terms of uh the you, you know she hadn't you say she hadn't finished there was more more coming coming along she did you know no it's not a plot spoiler to say that she had written a film script which Julie, she was attempting to interest Julie in doing, and it was going to be another uh, wonderful piss take of the the world of uh, of uh, television. Yeah. And the cinema was the one art form that she had never managed to conquer, despite uh, efforts in the nineteen seventy, oh, sorry, in the nineteen eighties to do so. And most obviously, when she tried and failed to get the rights to do the Calendar Girls story, so oh. she was she was writing a movie at the end right. and i've read the, the the first draft and it's got lots of wonderful stuff in it mm. um but, but uh, i guess that will never be seen no 
also, you, you know, somebody else will finish it for her. It's what she would have wanted. No, it isn't. <laughs> That's the one thing exact we learned. Opposite. Yeah. yeah, well, somebody else could, you know, just punch it up and do that. No, no, bad, bad idea. Hope you enjoyed that. We had loads of fun talking to Jasper. Go and get that book. Let's do it. Give it to your friends and family for Christmas and they will thank you. And then maybe you, um, they'll just be reading it for the following four or five days and you... Um, and then you'll get a bit of peace and quiet that way. But um, uh, thanks very much for listening. Cheers, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, see you all uh, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.